only about 10% of the population really wants freedom. Um, the majority of the population, in his assessment, as a professional, I mean, this is what he does, uh, study crowds and crowd behavior, the majority of the population wants to be told what to do. And one of the core tenets in authoritarianism that's been documented, you know, for decades now, Hannah Arendt and Gustave Le Bon, etc., um, is that um, if if one is going to choose, if 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 there is a desire to implement a totalitarian structure, um, the best leadership strategy is to be very domineering. People seem to want to have an authoritarian leader. That's why authoritarianism and totalitarianism always come together like this. Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast. I am of course sitting with Dr. Robert Malone, who you all know, he's a repeat guest on Dark Horse. And those of you who have been following know that the episode that Robert and I did with Steve Kirsch was removed from YouTube. Our channel was struck and demonetized. It remains demonetized. And so this is uh, round two. Welcome back, Robert. Thanks, Brad. It's good to see you again. It's great to see you. We've had chances to touch base, but not a chance to record anything together since then. So I really look forward to our chat. Yeah, me too. And I, I will say I have thought many, many times that we should do a podcast again. And the obstacle has been, I felt it was important to do it in person. And it has been, you've been all over the world. And uh, that um, has made it hard to arrange a meeting. But we are here together at a conference, which is more or less a conference of uh, COVID dissidents, I would say, yeah. from various various parts of that movement. And it's fascinating. It's the first time that I have been in a place where s there was such a concentration of people who were awake about the questions surrounding COVID. Yeah, you have to be pretty careful about use of the language around around that that concept of uh, awokenness, uh, given how you know this is another case where language has been captured uh, for political movements, and uh, so I. But I, I'm I'm with you. Uh, awake wakes feels like the right term. It's just now kind of politically contaminated. Um, but uh, people who. Um, are not caught in the mass formation uh, process, hypnosis process, let's say. Uh, yes, um, and I agree with you. I, I even feel like the term woke uh, had an honorable meaning that I would have, um, I would have aspired to, you know, several years ago, and that the word has been uh, turned on its head effectively. Well, you're kind of the poster child for that trajectory. Yeah, interestingly, tomorrow <laughs> is the uh, five-year anniversary of um, the day that I was catapulted into the spotlight uh, at the wrong end of an angry mob who demanded my resignation. Yeah, um, I I got to say my heart goes out to you for what you've experienced. I'm so glad that I had stepped out of academe uh, before this trend happened. Um, I can't imagine for those who um, are not able to reconcile themselves with this 
uh, current environment, what it, what it must, how painful it must be to be an academic and, and not buy into this dominant narrative and culture. Yeah, I, I will say um, my, my patience with people remaining in the academy is running thin because my sense is this, this movement is so aggressive and so clearly wrong that if you're still hanging in there, you're probably not saying enough. And, you know, there are exceptions. There are some, there are some academics that I know are fighting from within, but it's not many of them. Yeah, Jay Bhattacharya is an example of someone who is choosing to walk that fine line. I, I think this is something that um, a number of folks have, to, have had problems coming to terms with. There's the argument, as you know, because you were leading this panel uh, yesterday, there's the argument to uh, basically self-center, self-censor and select uh, carefully chosen language or in the case of J.P. Sears, he just mumbles whenever he, <laughs> instead of saying the word vaccine. And we all know what he's saying, but it escapes the filters. That's why he's able to stay on. Um, uh, but yeah, so, so I think that there, people face that choice of whether to self-censor and walk a very fine line. Even Neil Oliver was talking about it um, versus... Uh, those like myself that have come to the decision and, and the belief that um, I will be attacked, censored, defamed, etc., no matter whether I choose, elect to try to walk the fine line or not. And uh, it was kind of that realization that led to me, uh, my personal choice that led to me um, pushing the window on Twitter, which of course led to me being deplatformed because I had posted the Canadian COVID Care Alliance video about the Pfizer data manipulations in their clinical trials, every bit of which is true and factual. It was documented right in the video, in fact. Yeah, um, uh, but, uh, uh, but it meets the, it met the current definition of mis and disinformation, a failure to uh, um, comport with community standards as defined by Twitter, which is essentially that any uh, messaging which might be interpreted as causing vaccine hesitancy, whether grounded in truth or not, is disallowed. Yeah, and we, in fact, uh, we learned the playbook after you were ejected from Twitter that, in fact, uh, this was a head-scratcher back when all we had was mis- and disinformation. It is the invention of the term malinformation that tells us where we really are. And I should point out, I said this on the panel yesterday, that the Department of Homeland Security alerts us to three types of terrorism. Misinformation are honest errors. Disinformation are intentional errors. And malinformation are truths that cause you to distrust government, which means to the extent that your government is not trustworthy and you discuss it, you are guilty of terrorism, which of course, as you know, puts you into a very special category, a category with no rights. And the fact uh, is by virtue of this being housed in the Department of Homeland Security, it is effectively at the discretion of the executive to decide if you are or are not in the category. You will not know that you have been placed in the category. And once placed in the category, you have no rights. 
Every time I go through airport security, um, which is fairly frequent these days, I have a moment of, is this going to be the moment where they're going to pull me out of line? Virtually all the docks that had touch points on January 6th in any way um, have had that experience of being pulled out of line. Um, uh, I'm aware of a female physician that I'm not going to share uh, who's been strip searched uh, um, by Homeland Security when trying to, by TSA, when trying to pass through. Um, I, uh, it's profound, the, the changes that have occurred that um, have been implemented incrementally and which we as a culture have accommodated ourselves to. I gave a rally in uh, Oahu uh, back last fall where I made the point, uh, and I'm, I suspect you'll, it'll resonate with you, that it wasn't so long ago that we all felt sorry for the um, Chinese people because they had to live under a censored internet in which the government controls what they were able to say and when they were able to say it, and in which the government tracked them and would implement all kinds of activities to control their behavior and their speech. And uh, we, we felt at the time, and I remember thinking, um, those poor people, they have to carry internal passports. Uh, you remember that? Mm -hmm. uh, we, we were all uh, so shocked that uh, the CCP was implementing an internal passport system. And we all told ourselves that it's never happened in the United States because we have a Bill of Rights. Um, and here we are. Uh, I think it, it, it's helpful to, to walk that back in your memory, to be able to, to kind of cognitively process how much change we've experienced and come to accept. No, I, I agree. And if I, I, I consciously go through the exercise of trying to preserve a memory of what it was like so that I know how, how big the Delta is. I, I will say, I think the concept that we're looking for was absolutely nailed by William Binney, who was an NSA officer, I guess, uh, who turned whistleblower. And what he said, and this was... Uh, years back now, as he said, pre-Snowden, um, this was right in the Snowden era. Okay. He said, we are this close to a turnkey totalitarian state. And the idea that the totalitarian state might be erected around you, but the key not be turned. And so you wouldn't detect it, right? Because although you and I are certainly going to discuss true things that are sure to cause distrust of the government and therefore somehow meet an insane definition of terrorism right here in this podcast. We could hardly avoid it, right? Mm -hmm. right. We will certainly not know whether we, or we've not... Already, we've already crossed that line. We've crossed that line, right. So <laughs> the point is, I didn't feel anything, did you, right? Did we become terrorists in somebody's eyes? Will somebody look at this video and say, oh, they've, they've crossed that line? Your, uh, our, our mutual colleague and friend, James Heckman, makes the point, um, and this is why he was so strongly counseling that I not speak and that the physicians not be engaged in any of the trucker events. And I, and I did not completely follow his guidance, and I did speak out at Hagerstown, is that all of this information now is archived. 
And his point is not that it's going to be weaponized in the present, but that it's going to be weaponized in the future. Well, so I have a different version of this. Um, I call it retroactive surveillance. Mm -hmm. And the idea is if you just hoover up all of the information, all of the correspondence, people have the sense of, well, there's no way they're reading my email. Who am I? They don't, they're not noticing me. So I have a certain amount of safety, but you don't because what happens is it exists in a bank. And if five years later you become interesting to them, they can go backwards into precisely. your history. That's precisely the point. Um, uh, and I, and I agree. And it, it leads to a, you know, we're all kind of numbed now to what's happening. This Dark Horse discussion is sponsored by Public Goods. Public Goods was one of our very first sponsors, and we are as pleased with them now as we were when we first tried their products. Public Goods can simplify your life as a one-stop shop for everyday essentials. Their ingredients are carefully sourced, high quality, and their products are affordable. Public Goods has coffee and tea. They have grains and oils like olive and avocado. They have Castile soap, trash bags, and essential oils. They have spices and extracts like vanilla and almond, vinegar and pasta, dishware and glassware. Public Goods has everything you need to make a meal, including the materials to serve it on. Public Goods products have a great design, too. They have an aesthetic that is simple, clean, and will not make you want to move to another planet. Public Goods cares about health and sustainability. Their products are free of harmful ingredients, and the materials are ethically sourced. Finally, their subscription service is simple and easy to use. Public Goods members can buy all their premium essentials in one place. It really is an everything store. For Dark Horse listeners, we have the following offer. Receive $15 off your first Public Goods order with no minimum purchase. They are so confident that you will absolutely love their products and come back again and again that they are giving you $15 to spend on your first purchase. Go to publicgoods.com slash darkhorse or use the code darkhorse at checkout. That's P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S dot com slash darkhorse to receive $15 off your first order. There's something I wanted to mention, though, about all this, that um, we're in the process of, of building this book uh, for Skyhorse Publishing, um, uh, The Lies My Government Told Me and The Better Way Ahead. Uh, and I'm, I'm desperately seeking the better way ahead. <laughs> I have a little trouble with that one. Yeah. Um, but uh, the lies part is pretty easy. Uh, but uh, the point I wanted to make was we, this is forces Jill and I, my wife, Dr. Jill Glasspool Malone, um, to, because we're working the book together, to do exactly this journey that you're talking about of revisiting these events, this cascade of events. And one of the ones, you know, I, you probably get the question also, you actually related your answer about ivermectin um, with this key uh, uh, op-ed position piece that you read in an obscure travel journal uh, that was, you and you felt uh, Pulitzer Prize material covering um, Pierre Corey's journey mm -hmm. with ivermectin, which was a kind of a seminal turning point you spoke about intellectually for you. And I get that same question all the time. What caused you, Robert, to start speaking out? And historically, I've often gone back to the Dark Horse, that Dark Horse podcast that we shared as a pivot event. Um, and it was. But before that, uh, we had this experience where I got this notification that I talked about in your podcast uh, from Michael Callahan 
who was in Wuhan in the fourth quarter of 2019, called me on January 4th and said, get your team going. And what happened then, what that triggered, I don't think we talked about it in the prior podcast. What that triggered was me setting up the team that I already had in place that I was helping lead that was doing high-end computational stuff for discovering repurposed drugs for organophosphate, uh, in other words, uh, biowarfare agents, um, chemical agents. And uh, So you were working on things that effectively treat exposure to these biowarfare yeah, agents? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Doing, doing drug discovery using uh, biorobots and computational docking and the latest cool tech. Um, and so I kind of pivoted that team to work on drug repurposing, which is what eventually led to the famotidine thing. Mm-hmm. But what Jill did was, because she's very community oriented, um, she got going and started writing a book for self-publication on Amazon that uh, was titled, as I recall, um, uh, pre- you know, Novel Coronavirus, How to Prepare and Protect for Yourself, or something like that was the title. There was no, uh, the nomenclature that we now have of COVID-19 and, and SARS-CoV-2 didn't exist at the time. Mm-hmm. So we referred to it as the novel coronavirus. And uh, she worked her can off um, uh, just day and night. Um, uh, I remember just sitting there working together side by side on the couch and I helped edit it and I wrote a chapter, but she wrote most of it. It was a, a, a major effort for her. And she got it published in the first week in February and uh, through Amazon. And uh, the sales started climbing and uh, was well-received, all five-star ratings and everything. And her, her strategy had been as an avid user of Kindles, uh, historically, um, that this would allow her to update this thing in, a, in real time. As, as events developed. And so it was like in the third revision in March um, and she uploaded the revision and it got held. And it got held for a couple of days. And she inquired and they said, oh, it's just taking us longer than usual to process. Uh, and then um, she inquired again and they came back and they, they said that uh, um, they wouldn't be able to allow it to continue to be published and they would pull it. Mm. Um, and uh, and she inquired repeatedly because their policy had always been that they would give authors an opportunity to learn from the reviewers or whomever had made the decision about why this should be pulled. You know, you used a four-letter word or um, whatever your sin was. And the notification she got was what, you know, this phrase that's now infamous. At the time, it was the first time we've ever encountered it. You have violated community standards. Mm. Okay, was the lang- specific language. And uh, and we looked, we just poured over what they listed as their community standards. There was nothing that was remotely applicable to anything that was in the content of the book. And other people have looked at the book since. Um, it's entirely innocuous. It's talking about, um, uh, you know, bathroom practices to avoid fecal oral transmission and using alcohol wipes in airplanes and uh, grow your own garden and, you know, this kind of preparedness stuff. And uh, she advocated mask use. Uh, And this is, I think, might have been the sin of the book because at the time, Tony Fauci was saying no masks. Um, And so she was, uh, you know, brokenhearted. The truth is, I mean, it's kind of depressing 
when you put your heart and soul into something, work for multiple weeks, get it out. You're trying to help your community. You're trying to do the right thing. You're trying to help save people. And then it's just deleted um, with no uh, appeal. And uh, so, um, so she dug in. It turns out that there was a meeting uh, called, convened by the World Health Organization in February uh, with virtually all the major big tech players that we're now familiar with, where they, the WHO initially discussed the need to control information about this pandemic. Of course, we now know that this is one of the uh, characteristics that went into the planning for Event 201 was how to control information. So in retrospect, you know, none of us, Event 201, I had never heard of Event 201 at the time. Right. Uh, none of us really had that context. Now it's in, in retrospect that we look back, we see that there was planning for how to implement censorship and, and these uh, deploy these other kinds of strategies. But I think it's important to remember that there's, and in the book we have the documentation about this, that there was a WHO initiative in February of 2020, a time when the Trump administration was still largely in denial that this represented a major bio threat. And then shortly thereafter, there was another meeting convened in the White House with Amazon and others, uh, including Washington Post, and Washington Post covered it, um, uh, in which uh, the strategy for uh, censorship, essentially, I don't know what else to call it, was uh, actively discussed um, together with big tech and big tech was recruited. Now we know uh, that through, you know, thanks to, I think it was the Blazes uh, Freedom of Information Act, we now know about the billion dollars expended by our government to promote whatever messaging um, that they, uh, you know, we have yet to discover what that messaging was uh, in coordination with tech. And I look forward to Jeff Landry's uh, lawsuit um, in which he's uh, suing the government and Facebook for uh, collusion on this censorship and information control. And I think when we get to discovery, we're going to learn all kinds of stuff that we probably didn't want to know, but we kind of need to. I wonder if it will have the, the impact that it should. I find that there's so much shocking information that we're just inured to it. And, and if we realize the implications, we would be... Um, we would be motivated to do something because they are dire. So as you know, since we spoke, um, I've spent a fair amount of time with this interesting guy um, from uh, named Matthias Desmet, this mm -hmm. interesting yes. academic uh, that I ran into many months ago from a podcast and have developed a fairly close friendship. And we spent time in Spain together. And um, we, we cut podcasts fairly frequently. So uh, Matthias in addition to his uh, insights in his upcoming English version of his book, um, uh, The Psychological Basis of Totalitarianism, uh, also is writing another book, and he, we continue to kind of develop those ideas and talk about it. One of the things that he points out is that only about 10% of the population really wants freedom. Um, the majority of the population in his assessment as a professional, I mean, this is what he does, uh, study crowds and crowd behavior. The majority of the population wants to be told what to do. And one of the core tenets in authoritarianism that's been documented, you know, for decades now, Hannah Arendt and Gustave Le Bon, et cetera, um, is that um, 
if if one is going to choose if 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 there is a desire to implement a totalitarian structure um, the best leadership strategy is to be very domineering people seem to want to have an authoritarian leader that's why authoritarianism and totalitarianism always come together like this one of the things that he he and I are talking about a lot more recently is that totalitarianism, we, we often think, well, it's going to be like Stalin or it's going to be like right. Hitler, right? Each time it manifests in subtly different ways. And uh, one of the ways that I think we're seeing this one develop is a way that was predicted a few years ago, um, inverse totalitarianism. We have effectively this fusion of corporate interests and the bureaucracy, the entrenched bureaucracy, which is what makes it inverted. It's not the elected political leaders or the appointed political leaders, whatever the, you know, typically the, the in, yeah. a, in a totalitarian structure, you have a small number of leaders at the summit um, that function as the political elite. But what we have, I think, growing here in the United States, and really, if you think about the World Economic Forum, it's kind of like that too, is you have these bureaucratic functionaries that uh, represent a, a more subtle, quiet, um, uh, established leadership that are acting in uh, unilateral, um, authoritarian, totalitarian fashion, but they, they are much less visible except for folks like you and me that are living in the moment and obsessing over it. Well, I, I am very cautious about imagining that I know more than I do about what is actually driving. I think we can feel the force that is arrayed against us. We can say something about how powerful it is, what kinds of tools it has at its disposal. We can say a little bit about um, the fact that it is not, it is at least not entirely a conspiracy, that there is at least a component of it that is evolved, that is emergent. Um, but I do not know to the extent that it behaves like an inverted totalitarian state. I don't know that it isn't a cryptic traditional one, right, where we can't see the connections. And I'm especially cautious about it because I think its relationship to nation states is increasingly, um, uh, it's an, it's a, constraint that it must deal with. The fact that we still believe that we function in nations is uh, real and it has an impact. But for example, the apparent agreement amongst the Five Eyes countries to, well, my government can't invade my privacy, but there's no, yeah, but the British government can apparently invade my privacy and the American government can ask them to do it. Right. Obviously, that is a violation of the spirit of the Bill of Rights. But the fact that we know that it takes place and that we know that these alliances exist and that we're not allowed to check in on them and that, you know, I'll go back to the issue of in the U.S., it is literally true that the executive branch, because it decides someday that you've crossed the line that it has outlined without any ability to question it, can decide that you can no longer avail yourself of, for example, a court in which you might be able to say, I am not a terrorist and, you know, show me the evidence that I am. That court doesn't exist because you're not even allowed to know that it's been designated. So the point is that structure, to the extent that some structure can un-American me. It can 
take away my American rights, right, and then expose me to who knows what uh, that is decided at a global level, right? And, and we should probably at least touch on the fact that, you know, either this treaty with the WHO, um, which uh, many of us regard as a serious threat to sovereignty, this treaty that is supposed to provide a mechanism for managing a global pandemic. And I think all of us would agree that, you know, we're if we had good governance globally, we would like somebody in a position to do rational things above the level of nations because these pathogens do jump borders. But I don't think anybody who's been paying attention wants any governmental structure that exists on earth today empowered to do these kinds of things because they obviously can't be trusted. I guess I've tripped over that line again. Um, but I don't know. I don't know what we're up against. And um, I, I'm afraid of assuming we know more than we do because it will cause us to make errors in fighting it. Fair enough. Um, I, I, I'm a little further along in the uh, spectrum. Uh, I'm choosing those words carefully. <laughs> um, uh, um, some might say I'm quite farther along in the spectrum, uh, whatever that spectrum is. Uh, right. So the pandemic treaty. Um, first off, we, we need to own, acknowledge that there is no treaty between the United States government and the World Health Organization. There's an agreement. Um, uh, we've agreed to fund them. We've agreed to engage and participate with them. But we do not have a treaty that has been reviewed by the uh, Senate and yeah. approved. Um, second point, I think what you're talking, because there is a treaty on the table. Yeah. Um, in addition to that treaty, there is the modification of the international health regulations, which is basically a, a modification of the, um, we can call it operating principles of the World Health Organization um, that was uh, submitted, I think it was January 28th, by our Health and Human Services which is the document that currently seems to have most folks wound up and I think is what you're referring to. Yep. So, so these are um, uh, modifications to what are functionally operating procedures uh, that they call the international health regulations that um, uh, we're proposing that create a path that would allow the director general, currently Mr. Tedros, uh, to... Um, unilaterally uh, implement, uh, de declare a public health emergency for any reason. Um, and it's been pointed out, you know, one hot button is it could be for gun violence. A case could be made that we have an epidemic of gun violence in the United States, which is compromising public health. That case can well be made, has been made multiple times. Um, we could say that we have an epidemic of depression. Or anxiety. Those are all true. Mm -hmm. We do have those things, um, uh, and uh, or or it could be because of monkeypox, just pulling a pathogen out of the hat for some reason. Um, uh, in in the determination uh, under these regulations would be made unilaterally by the director general, um, based on. Uh, non-transparent sources, so they could be from anywhere. It could be Bill Gates calls him up and says, "Hey, we need a right. we we need a public health emergency," um, and uh, it would convey powers 
to um, make recommendations which nation states would have to respond to within 48 hours. And if they did not comport with those regulations, it would authorize WHO and through that the United Nations to implement sanctions such as, for instance, we've seen with Russia regarding the Ukrainian situation. So it, it this pathway does not require uh, Senate uh, concurrence. It's not a treaty based um, and, and it's uh, ostensibly based in international law um, and sets a precedent of a unelected um, uh, uh, well, he's elected sort of. He was elected without opposition by unanimity for his uh, recent re-election, uh, the director general, right? Um, to uh, implement uh, policies and practices that our government had no control over. Right, but I would just point out this is the same story that I already told about um, the Department of Homeland Security. The Bingo. Idea- the idea is there are supposed to be checks that prevent you from making a law that says, actually, at my sole discretion, I can declare you a so-and-so, and then having declared you a so-and-so. Well, you're, you're precisely right. right? This is the same thing. And so I think the, the problem is it's very hard to, you know, it's very hard to imagine exactly how it would go down that the who is going to be dictating that we must impose mandates, right? It's very abstract. But the point is, once you've built that mechanism, that can be deployed at any point, point, it it, it precisely illuminates and illustrates the point you made at the beginning, uh, which is this edifice has been built around us. um, And at any point, the key can be turned, which makes it the sort of Damocles. It's always hanging over our head. And all they have to do is choose to cut the cord and it'll cut our neck off, metaphorically. Um, uh, and so that, and I think this is a key idea that you're drilling in on because this drives behavioral changes that in, in use of language and, uh, communication, um, without ever having to cross the line. Right. It is, it is a a incredibly effective tool to generate self-censorship in behavior, thought, and speech. I think of it as the opposite of goose-stepping, right? And the idea is, look, if totalitarianism goose-stepped its way in, we'd all know exactly what it was, right? This is the opposite. It's like, it's it's subtle enough. You've got to have a certain, you know, ability to track an argument and follow through. It's it's boring. It, it's boring. It's so boring that you're not going to notice it. And if somebody says it's happening, you're going to want them to stop talking about it because it's it's too abstract. Right? It's insidious. It is. And it is relentless. Yeah, it is That's, relentless. It's, it's the relentless aspect that sometimes I have to um, fight um, the darkness inside myself when I encounter it. Yeah. Um, that the... Uh, relentless denial of the data, of the facts, of the truth. Um, we're in a world, <coughs> it's, it seems hyperbole, we're in a post-truth world. Mm-hmm. Well, the truth, I mean, there is literally a memo that says if you say true things that cause people to distrust their government, you're guilty of terrorism. It is, That's where we are. It is so deeply Orwellian. It, it, it's, I think I was thinking this this morning, that it's actually 
a step beyond Orwell, right? That's a. It's like they've taken nineteen. So I'm not, this is an original thought to me. It's as if they've taken the writings of Orwell in Animal Farm in nineteen eighty four and Brave New World and all those classic texts that you yeah. and I probably because we're of a certain generation we had to read when we were young humans yeah. uh, and um, in our formative years in those in those key years right before puberty most of us were had had to encounter these this logic and these thoughts and it's as if they've taken those classic works and used them as textbooks as a starting point it 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 really reminds me of uh, Machiavelli's the prince mm-hmm. um, but the prince was actually written as a as a lodestone as a guide for uh, the young noble in um, the uh, balkanized world of uh, Italy um, uh, at, you know, at Renaissance and post-Renaissance period. And it's as if they have taken these warning texts and uh, taken them as a starting point and weaponized them. Uh, I agree. And now I'm going to pivot us a little bit because I think this mirrors something that's going on in a different realm, one that's more home territory for both you and me and probably more fun to talk about, which is, you know, the sort of molecular inner workings of viruses and the way they interface with the the body. But the the connection is this. I learned something from you at this conference. Uh, You caused the dime to drop on something that I hadn't put together, which is I had become aware of course, of the modification of the RNA in the uh, the RNA-based vaccines, Um, a substitution of a nucleotide. But when I became aware that it had happened, I assumed that that had been uh, information that was available all along and that I had somehow overlooked it. That's not right, is it? Um, so, uh, so you're speaking of the incorporation of pseudouridine. Yep. And, uh, just for the audience, so we're all kind of on the same page. Yep. This, to, to kind of comprehend this without going too deep into the weeds, uh, the process that this synthetic RNA is, by which it's manufactured, is that, um, a plasma DNA, a circular DNA is manufactured in a bacteria where you can make large quantities of it. And it has encoded in it the sequences necessary to tell a particular enzyme, start here and go there and uh, make an RNA based on this DNA template. Okay, and the enzyme that does that is T7 RNA polymerase. Um, And when it does that, it has to grab the components, the nucleotides, as you mentioned, out of a solution. The enzyme, as it proceeds along the DNA track to make this uh, be uh, like a string of pearls kind of product that is the RNA that comes off of that polymerase, uh, the polymerase enzyme has to grab these molecules out of solution. And the molecular mix is relatively homogeneous, but somewhat random. Um, and uh, the way it's done is in the tube, metaphorically, of course, this is happening in a larger volume now. In the tube, you add A, U, G, and C, these four fundamental components, as opposed to the digital world that we're familiar with, which only has two, a zero, and a one. In nucleic acids, there's four components, A, U, G, C, or A, T, G, C, and DNA, just to get the fundamentals out. 
And um, in natural RNA, uh, the um, there is a uh, uracil or uridine base that is one of these four. It's the U, A-U-G-C, that goes into the RNA. And it is uh, polymerized in the cell in the same kind of process. Uh, and then in the cell, there's a specific enzyme that will act at specific points in that RNA. And we're still learning that. We're learning about what makes that enzyme decide to change that particular uridine to a pseudouridine. It's a chemical modification catalyzed by an enzyme and it's very precisely controlled. And very precisely controlled in, in a biological, in a, in a functioning in cell, cell. In a functioning cell. And it's very precisely controlled because the implications of where it does that modification are huge in the biology of that subsequent RNA and what it does, how it gets spliced, which is to say kind of molecularly recombined, um, how long it lasts in the cell. And it also affects um, the, the RNAs apparently influence a lot of pathways involved in your immune response. And so all of these things are regulated and the pseudouridine changes how the RNA folds is a whole bunch of intricate cool stuff if you're an RNA wonk. Um, and the difference is that, number one, we really don't understand how all that works yet. Um, so this is the uh, um, part about uh, um, uh, coming to terms with our own ignorance. Yeah, well, uh, precautionary principle-wise, just so it's a, it's okay. a red flag. And, and so what, what's done in the, uh, in the uh, synthetic RNA that's produced in a factory uh, that employs this patent of Carrico and Weissman, which is held by UPenn and licensed to uh, BioNTech and to Moderna, is that um, they put um, all of the U's or most of the U's are pseudouridines. Um, and they incorporate them randomly throughout the RNA at very high density. Yep. And so what this results in is an RNA that is not natural. It is something different. It's not what would be normally in the cell. And yet physicians were reassured by the pharmaceutical industry that uh, um, the behavior of this artificial RNA in terms of how long it sticks in the cell and its underlying biology was the same as a natural RNA. And this was actively told when physicians asked, uh, you know, typically they would ask the pharmaceutical rep or whatever for information. Well, how long does this drug stick around? Which is a normal thing to ask. Okay, we call that pharmacokinetics is the fancy yep. word for it. Um, you know, how long does the drug last in your body before it gets decomposed? One of the fundamental characteristics that is always an analyzed with any new pharmaceutical. Um, those studies actually weren't done. Yep. Uh, nor were the, where does the drug go in your body? The fancy word for that is pharmacodistribution. And how long is it active? That's pharmacokinetics. None of that stuff was done. Um, it was done to a limited extent, but not rigorously. And not looking at this full cascade that the RNA is actually not really the drug. It's sort of the drug. 
Um, but the active principle is the thing that the RNA makes, the protein, which makes it complex and it really doesn't fit regular vaccine uh, regulatory paradigms. Right. So, so then um, fast forward, uh, Katie oh. Carrico, um knew because I'd spoken to her. She called me about a decade after I'd done the, for, the initial work and asked for my help. Um, and I said, because she wanted to work on RNA and RNA delivery. And I said, the big problem with the system is that it is incredibly inflammatory. It essentially, giving it common language, it causes pus formation when you inject it into a variety of tissues and uh, pain and swelling and redness, classic signs of inflammation. And, uh, and so, so I said, you know, I told her people that she could talk to and, and she and Drew Weissman, who's a, a Fauci postdoc um, uh, at Penn, um, had the brainstorm that they would take this new biologic finding, pseudouridine, which was known at the time to have some effect on inflammation associated with RNA. And they said, we'll just put a whole lot of pseudouridine in the RNA. And lo and behold, it produced a product that would produce protein for longer and at higher levels um, when it was administered into an animal. And so this was the basis for that patent. Um, Moderna actually didn't want to license it. Uh, Katie is a vice president at BioNTech, so it was always part of the BioNTech uh, um, portfolio. And the, there's another third player in the RNA vaccine space called CureVac, which is also in Germany, and they've never used pseudouridine. And actually, the, the um, immune responses of their RNA formulations, which are basically the same except they don't have the pseudouridine, in humans are very similar. Um, but this was the position that was taken by these uh, two scientists who had close ties to NIH. And that is why that pseudouridine is incorporated that way in all of the artificial RNAs that any of us that have taken the RNA vaccines have received. And um, then fast forward to the present and we have these odd observations about immunosuppression. And then we had this paper come out in Cell in January uh, from this team from Stanford that did the fine needle aspirations. Uh, so they actually pulled cells out of people's bodies. It wasn't in a test tube or in a Petri dish. And they said, how long does this RNA stick around? And it turns out that it doesn't stick around for half an hour, an hour or two hours, which is what the pharma had been telling the physicians. But in fact, it sticks around for at least 60 days. They didn't test beyond that. Right. And furthermore, it produces more protein in your blood, more spike protein of the, remember, the, the, this is one of the things I got fact-checked on after our infamous interview, yep. that spike is absolutely not a toxin. The spike that's in the vaccine is not a toxin. That's the, what they claimed. The spike has two main components, S2 that kind of stays in the cell and gets cut from the other part that's extracellular called S1 that circulates and binds to S2 and does all this wonderful stuff. In the vaccine and in the virus, the S1 is identical. In the vaccine and the virus, the S2 is almost identical, except for it has two little point mutations, two prolines, which are there that makes the uh, product, when it's expressed, more immunogenic from an antibody standpoint. And I think you, you taught me this. They locked it open. They basically took the scissors and they put a, a weld so that the scissors are locked open. And we look at it. And yeah. the reason that they did that 
was because the outside of the protein naturally accumulates sugars, which is probably an evolved defense of the virus so that Absolutely. it doesn't get spotted. <laughs> and so by locking it open, they expose a part of the protein that the immune system can then see and register. So at the level of can you make a vaccine that stimulates the immune system, this makes sense. But they took a toxic protein and they locked it open and left it otherwise so that, similar. I, when I said that to you, I got that partially wrong. Okay. And, and I got pushback from uh, molecular virologists on that. And I had to dive deeper into it and correct that. Um, so thanks for bringing that up. Great. Um, I got it wrong. Uh, um, it was my best understanding at the time uh, that those two proline mutations do alter the immunogenicity, but they don't really lock the... Uh, receptor binding domain pockets open, like I was saying. Mm. And now I know that those receptor binding domains, it's a, this, this protein that we talk about spikes so casually is a fascinating molecule as all of these viral receptors that have dual functions, they bind and then they also trigger the fusion event that allows the nucleic acid to get into the cell. Um, in the case of, of the, the um, spike protein, I like to use the metaphor, it's like a treble fish hook. Right. Mm -hmm. Understand what a treble hook looks like. Sure. And if you think about the barbs on the treble hook, those are akin to the receptor binding domain. And if you think about the part where you tie the knot um, onto the fishing line, that's really S2. That little loop down yep. there is kind of like S2. So if you've got that metaphor in your mind, then you can imagine each of those barbs are completely flexible. They can rotate. Okay. And that's what the receptor binding domain does. And it, that, those two point mutations alter the conformation of that three treble, three component trimer that is spike mm -hmm. and alter the um, conformational change capability to undergo the conformational change associated with the um, fusion versus pre-fusion conformation. Remember I said yep. they has this dual function, but so that part is true. Um, it does make it more immunogenic. It does alter the, the it locks it into the pre-fusion confirmation. Um, so it can't undergo that change, but it, I was wrong. It does not affect the receptor binding domains, which are floating out there kind of free. And it makes sense from a, I mean, I know you love biology and evolution and biochemistry. And so you can imagine these things have, you know, huge conformational freedom to find their mm -hmm. uh, cognate receptor. So that's, um, thank you for mentioning that, but, but it's, this is really in the weeds uh, for well, most. Let, let's go back to the, the uh, pseudouridine in the, in the mRNA, yeah. because uh, I really wanted to get at something actually kind of simple. I appreciate your explanation um, of how it gets there, but I feel I was lied to in the same way that you're describing that doctors who were interested uh, in the contents of the vaccine and their durability in the cell were lied to because I was saying, I was repeating, oh, it's an mRNA. It's been encased in these lipid nanoparticles. The lipid nanoparticles have an affinity for cells because the cells have a lipid on their surface. That gives me some sort of a ballpark as a biologist to say, well, how novel is this, right? The lipid nanoparticles, highly novel. I can see that. The mRNA, it's highly novel in the sequence, but it's not highly novel to have an mRNA floating structure. in the cytoplasm. Yeah. And so I have some sort of intuitive sense about what that would mean about how durable the thing would be. Because for one thing, 
The body doesn't like free mRNAs. Right? It doesn't like foreign nucleic acids. Right. It absolutely hates foreign nucleic acids. It's got all kinds of barriers for good reason. Right. So you would imagine. <laughs> so, and in fact, the story when the vaccines first came out um, was that one of the challenges was getting enough of the stuff intact into the cells to get it to work. Right. So, okay, this all, this sets up in the mind a sense where the, the novel aspects that are introduced into the body are not long lived. So, yes, there's a lot of danger in this vaccine, but at least if you survive the period where it interacts with your cells, which ostensibly is just a few hours. Right. So at the point that I found out, oh, wait a minute. This isn't mRNA in the standard sense. My standard model for mRNA doesn't work. It doesn't tell right. me how long. It's as if you dropped a fiberglass log in the forest. And it's like, well, logs in the forest, they get eaten by termites and fungi and things Interesting like that. Interesting metaphor. I know how long that takes, roughly. Uh -huh. Depends on the forest. But whatever. I've got some model. Well, that fiberglass log might last an awfully long time in that forest because it's not really a log at all. And... So anyway, I, I well, let's run with your metaphor for just a minute. All right. Okay, I love the metaphor. Okay, so because it's it has it has a length, two dimensional aspect, um, so that's that's good, um, and it's very long lived, and it's composed of fibers. I mean, we don't have to go too down in the metaphor. Yeah. Um, so the log in the forest, as the metaphor for the RNA, one of the things that has Ryan Cole and I really worried, and we've discussed how to do the experiment, but we're all too busy and it takes money. Um, okay. Now imagine that log in the forest. Okay. Now we're going to place that log into the cell, metaphorically speaking. Okay. And that log has a function um, it processes something that causes something to be made that happens to be toxic. Okay. And yet the cell now or the forest in the metaphor can never degrade it. Mm -hmm. Okay. But that foreign thing that it makes can cause that cell to get attacked. Will cause it to get attacked. If, if you're successful in generating an immune response and a T cell response in particular, the cells that have that RNA that are making that spike protein will get attacked. So hold on. I want to pause you because I advanced a hypothesis on Dark Horse, which has now just come right back up. So I want to catch people up and then I want you to pick up your explanation. So what I argued, and I, I believe I came up with this independently, but I believe Peter McCullough has mentioned something similar as has Jonathan Cooey. The idea is the body has a way to recognize cells that have been virally infected. Yes. Cells that have been virally infected have a quirk, which is their surface has a mixture of self-proteins, which the body recognizes, and non-self-proteins, which it recognizes by virtue of the fact that it doesn't know what they are. When a cell has those two things on its surface, the only thing it can be from a biological perspective is a virally infected cell. And a virally infected or cell... Or cell. I guess it could be, well, yeah, because the, the then, same, then the, the non-self is self, but it's sufficiently it's a, it's a mutated self. Right. Okay. So okay. fair enough. The point is, in either of those cases, there is one and only one right thing to do, and that is to destroy the cell, right? And the problem is... It's a is, simple switch. It's a simple <laughs> switch. If that cell is in your heart, well, you, now you've got two problems because you've got your immune system attacking the cells True. in the heart. 
and your heart doesn't repair its scars. Bingo. Right. And so the point is, you could get a lot of scar tissue in your heart. You might get away with it. It might diminish the longevity of your heart. It might reduce its capacity to pump blood, or you might have just a little damage and you would be subthreshold. But all true. Anyway, so the point is. Yeah, we could go down that rabbit hole if you want. We with this, uh, with the mRNA-based vaccines, at least we set people who receive those injections up for their immune system to attack their own cells on the yes. basis that they had been virally infected. And then this issue of the change, the altered mRNA makes it vastly worse because the point is, it's not that the cell stops producing the foreign protein and maybe the immune system hasn't gotten around to killing it and that cell can go back to being a normal cell. The point is, now that mRNA might be very long lived and that cell is gonna to continue to produce foreign protein until some T cell, cytotoxic T cell comes and, and kills it out or a natural killer cell. Or antibody dependent cytotoxicity, cellular cytotoxicity. So all, all true, yeah. concur, okay, and more so. So what that says is like what you want at the point that they say, all right, we've got a pandemic, we've got some vaccines, don't worry, they're good vaccines, we've tested them and you're trying to check whether or not what they're saying makes sense. The question is, how novel is that thing you want to inject into me, right? Lipid nanoparticles, mm, red flag, okay? Should, be, should have been well characterized pharmaceutically. Right, but there ain't no natural version of that, right? That is a non-targeted mechanism for invading cells. It's Correct. if, you know, it, it's dependent. In on normal the, vaccinology, the characterization of the, uh, um, pharmacologic toxicology associated with that component, if, for instance, if we were to define it as an adjuvant. Yeah, right. Would typically require years. Mm -hmm. All right. So that was one red flag. That one set me off, right? I could see that that was a hazard. Didn't mean it wasn't brilliant. I mean, I, I think it may in fact Doesn't be. Doesn't matter. Well, but it is. It is what it is. It is what it is. But it's at least from the point of view of the more novel your uh, your remedy is, the more likely it has consequences you don't know about that you're not going to like, right? Now, so add on top of that. So I missed that the payload also right. had a similar level of yes. novelty here, yes. which was that the mRNA wasn't really mRNA. It was very special mRNA that might... I, I suggest it should not be called mRNA. It is a long-lived polynucleotide, single-stranded polynucleotide, which can be translated, but it is really not mRNA. I think it deserves its own language. Yeah, it, it certainly, it, it, it at least deserves another letter, right? It deserves another letter, something that will call your attention to the fact that there's a novelty. SMRNA, synthetic mRNA or something. Right, something like that. And anyway, so at the point that you mentioned at the conference um, what this was, and it, the dime dropped that it wasn't that I had missed this at the beginning, it's that they, did, they forgot to mention it, right? And it's like a huge thing to forget to mention. I felt again burned by this whole story because with that piece of information, I could have been that much clearer about the novelty and the danger and, you know, we, we could have had a better discussion, but, um, so let me, let me, there's two corollaries. Yep. Um, uh, 